Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different turkey drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. Today on our show, it's all about pre-colonial native peoples in the tri-state with Bob Genheimer. Someone had dozed a mound away, and there was a shopping center going in, and we went and looked, and there was a lot of stuff below the surface. So the mound was completely gone, but there were house remains and stuff structure remains below. As you may know, loads of ancient peoples lived in the tri-state, including the Adena, Fort Ancient, Hopewell, and more. Bob, who is the curator of archaeology at the Cincinnati Museum Center, steps into the back room of our Hyde Park store to help us sort all of that out. We are not only about the Fort Ancient people, the Hopewell, and the Adena, but about the Serpent Mound and how ancient artifacts and remains are being given back to those groups' descendants. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Kick in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to... Bob Genheimer about native peoples of the tri-state. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. So yeah, so thanks for coming to our little uh, studio here yeah. in the stock room of our Hyde Park store. This is uh, so, okay, so high tech. You three, three, three. Yeah, yeah. One, one, uh, this one in uh, the downtown OTR. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Look at that. You know, uh, I've never. This is the only one I've never been in. Okay. Uh, I bought shirts at the Loveland one, and of course OTR because we're down there. Yeah, we used to run over there when Dan was working. I was going to say, lunch. we yeah. have a mutual friend, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, Dan and I did an episode, I forget who we talked to, where we kind of touched on the, uh, the, observatory. the native peoples, yeah. And then uh, another episode, we kind of touched, <laughs> oh, uh, West, when Wes Cowan was in. We oh, you did Wes. We did for, talk to her a few minutes about that. But then uh, I heard on VXU when you uh, had spearheaded the effort to get that site in Butler County. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, we've got to get this guy on the podcast. I want a yeah. full hour of uh, pre-Columbian native peoples. <laughs> yeah. Well, pre-colonial, and, not pre <laughs> Ann Thompson is good. Yeah, yeah. She actually she asked terrific questions. And, yeah. You know, she's she's really good. I've done a bunch of stories with her, and and she'll run them by you. You like? She'll say, you know, did I? Is this correct? And most people don't, you know. Like the anchor and folks like that, whatever you said, 
whether yeah. it's true or not, is going to go. Uh, go Cincinnati down. Magazine, I'll vouch for. They have uh, yeah. diligent fact checkers. They, oh, they would, yeah. they would send. Yeah, they would send my manuscript back to me and say, "Hey, we checked this one thing. You're going to have to double check, or can you verify this and that?" And yeah. so, yeah, yeah. We just did a story, and I talked to, and he had a British accent. This fact checker, I don't know what he. And <laughs> he said, "You have a couple of minutes." We are on the phone for an hour. Yeah. I was off. It was like an off day. And I said, okay. Yeah, yeah. Some talk. But it's a good thing because there was a lot of stuff that wasn't accurate, you know. We had to, had to fix it, and the article came out nice. Yeah. So are you yeah. from Cincinnati? Uh, yeah. I grew up right next to the University of Cincinnati. Okay. So we're going to ask what high school, as you're supposed to. You want to ask me that now? Yeah. What high school? Roger Bacon. <laughs> Roger Bacon. Okay. There you go. Cool. And always interested in archaeology and that kind of thing? Or? In, the, in the past. I was always interested in the past, yeah. Okay. And how did that kind of manifest itself in school? Did you did you, did you early on think, this is what I'm going to do? Or did, was there a, a moment where you thought, this is... Well, when I was a freshman at UC back... Oh, my God. I started some classes in 71. We I was interested in the past. I didn't know. So I took introductory courses in history and in anthropology. And I don't remember the history courses, but I do remember the anthropology courses, and that's what got me. That's what grabbed me. And I realized that what I wanted to do was get dirty. <laughs> I, want, I want to get my hands dirty working on stuff. I didn't want to be an historian who would just simply do book learning or doing book research. I wanted to get out in the field and, and, and do that sort of stuff. So archaeology is what grabbed me. And that's pre-Indiana Jones, too. Like, oh, you know, way. I'm a kid in the 80s, so I'm way. like, yeah. So every kid in the 80s wants to be Indiana Jones. But but before that, I mean, I, th- I think that's pretty cool, too, because it wasn't on, like, the pop culture radar. No, and when, when I when Indiana Jones first came out, like, my generation of archaeologists thought that was absurd, you know. <laughs> this, this guy who breaks every rule in the book and, you know, he's shooting people, he's got a whip, he's doing all this. But when you look at it today... like You don't this, carry a gun and a whip? No, this, the Society for American Archaeology did, you know, years ago they did a study in what, you know, what was the thing that made you interested um, in archaeology. And there was a big majority of them said Indiana Jones movies. And I was like, oh, my God. But whatever it takes, you know, sure. uh, obviously they don't do that type of archaeology like Indiana Jones did, but... Of people are influenced by pop culture. Totally. Yeah. There's not treasure hunts going on, and you know, like (laughs) the bad guys trying to get to it first. Well, we don't we don't advertise it, but (laughs) some things happen. You know, our drama is a lot less than Indiana Jones would ever have. But uh, but whatever gets people excited in something, you know, I guess that's great. It just it didn't didn't do anything for me, but it's done a lot for a whole bunch of other people that are younger than me. So. So how'd you wind up at the museum center? I wound up at the Museum Center back in 1990. Um, they uh, were applying for a National Science Foundation grant to bring uh, about 50,000 items over from the Cincinnati Art Museum. It was sort of an exchange, and they wanted somebody to sort of run that, process the material. Prior to that, I had been doing my own sort of contract archaeology and stuff, and I was bored with it. I wanted to be around people, and museums are great places. Museums are full of odd, wonderful people, uh, and that's what I wanted to experience. So that's how I started, uh, and then I, that was Wes Cowan, who you guys have already interviewed. Um, he was he was the curator of archaeology at the time, and about four years later, he left to run his own business. Um, I was sort of an acting curator for a while, and then we hired another curator, and that curator left, and then... Uh, 2003, I became uh, the curator of archaeology 
uh, after being there 23 years, and I'm on my 30th year now uh, at the museum center. Wow. You said you were doing contract archaeology. How does that work? Um, most archaeologists in the U.S. work uh, in doing contract archaeology. They call it CRM, or Cultural Resource Management. So there are federal laws that say if there's any sort of money uh, uh, permits, any sort of federal hook, that you have to do a m- number of things, environmental studies, archaeology, that sort of stuff. So there are a bunch of CRM firms. There's a big one right in over the Rhine, uh, Grand Pape, which is down there, um, and they have offices all over the country uh, as well. I went to grad school with Kevin Pape, uh, uh, who runs that, uh, that whole company. So it's a big industry, and that's where most of them go. Um, museums are, there's not a terrible number of museum jobs, and then there's really not a great number of academic jobs because there's only so many programs in the U.S. Uh, so those academic jobs are highly competitive. Uh, that's what Those are the jobs that people want. Uh, but I love the museum job because I, I don't have to teach. I have the freedom to do what I want within reason. Uh, you know, we get to do great projects and work on great things. And I get to, you know, work with a bunch of great people, our exhibits, crews, and everything. It's fabulous. Um, and, the, I mean, that's a great job. I never go to work saying, oh, man, I don't want to go to work today. Yeah. It's, it, it's a one. And I know that I pinch myself because I see so many people that are just doing the opposite, that they're just going to work because they have to. And uh, I'm, I'm lucky, and I realize I'm lucky. I grew up here in town. I got the job in town. And... Um, and I don't want to leave it. I'm going to want to work in, uh, until I have to retire, I think. So that's so what, my goal. What's a typical day like? Cause you're, are you, I know that you've over the, the museum overseas, did they oversee the Hans site or does some, is that somebody else's or is that, and you go out there often or are you in the museum often or what's? Well, the Hans site itself is, that's the field school that we go and we're, we've, um, we just finished our 12th year out there. That's just the month of July. And the Hans site itself is owned by um, the uh, Anderson Park District. Oh, okay. So it's in Clear Creek Park. So they are, they're very gracious and let us dig holes in their nicely manicured uh, lawns out there at, at the site. But it's a National Register site. They know it's there. They've been very amenable to us uh, uh, doing that. But my, my typical day at the museum, uh, so we do a number of things. So... There's lots of meetings, as you can imagine, because right now we're in the midst of trying to replace a lot of the exhibits that uh, we lost when we renovated the building. Uh, we also have volunteers, and I supervise volunteers. Uh, we also have adjuncts, so people that are colleagues that aren't paid but come in and do work for us. Uh, I also supervise a like a collections manager. He's a, a NAGPRA person. Uh, we can talk about NAGPRA in a second, but he, we, we do that. So, uh, there's a lot of stuff. Some days we work on exhibits. Um, um, it just varies. We have people bring stuff into us. So, I mean, that happens a couple of times a week. We'll get a phone call or an email. Oh, I found this stuff. Um, can you tell me what it is? Uh, and you know, have them send us a photograph or if we can't tell then, then they bring it in and sometimes they donate the stuff to us. Uh, so there's a lot. People find stuff all the time with all the farmers might, and development. I might stuff. have something for you. And I was talking to the to uh, I don't know if I talked to Elizabeth about this or, or maybe it was West or somebody. Anyway, I found this 
uh, oblong sort of rock at my old house when I was putting in a uh, compost uh, heap. And uh, it was right by a fence, and it's too perfectly round to be part of the thing that held the, the cement that held the fence in. It, my father thinks it's a geode. I'm not sure. I, I might. It could also be kind of some kind of a grinding stone, and I don't know. But I, I was going to bring it to the museum once a long time ago, and I didn't. And uh, but, well, you should have brought it today. Yeah, yeah, I, I should have totally yeah, done it right on air. It, so. it, man. It's sitting in my rock. Oh, I'm so dumb. Why did I think of that? That would yeah. been exciting. I'll have to send you. Well, I'll, I'll send you a picture, <laughs> and then when we post the episode, I'll at the, when I do the outro, I'll, we'll see what the result, what the result is. But yeah, I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. But yeah, and it could just be a, per, a rounded block of cement. I don't know, but it's yeah one of those three things. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the coolest thing someone's brought in? Yeah. Well, we just had, uh, that's about a month ago, this a guy brought in a bunch of stuff from big sites here uh, in Hamilton County that his grandfather had collected off the surface, you know, back in the 1930s and 40s. And there was a bunch of fabulous stuff, and he's had it sitting in boxes in his garage. Uh, you know, I think his wife wanted stuff out of the garage, so he brought it in. And we said, yeah, we'd love to have this stuff because, and some of it was from the Han site. Some of it from other sites, like the Madisonville site, which is in Marymont, and some other stuff, which we have big collections on. We said, yeah, sure, we, we will take this stuff. So sometimes stuff just comes in out of the blue. Uh, you just don't know it. And you don't. People have had stuff for a long time, uh, and it just keeps coming to us. Now, before we do the, the, the deep dive here that I want to do, you said you wanted NAGPRA? What was... What? NAGPRA is the Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. Aha. Uh-huh. So anyone who receives federal money uh, in any sense whatsoever, so all museums, universities, have to comply with the law, which was enacted in 1990. So essentially what it does is it tries to match up uh, descendant communities and Native Americans with... Uh, mostly human remains, Native American remains, uh, and some uh, artifacts like funerary items, grave goods. And so we've been doing consultation now for four or five years. So we have met with, uh, I believe, face-to-face with 14 tribes, uh, most of which are in Oklahoma. Um, One is in the state of New York. Um, So, And we're trying to build relationships with them we want to get the stuff that we have um, back in the ground, which is their goal, too. So all these bodies that were dug up, they should have never really been dug up. They're not really ours. Uh, you know, they, they belong back with these people and back in the ground. And that's what we're trying to facilitate. But it's a really tough and long process. It's hard to determine who whose ancestors are who. Um, because of all the interactions and, and displacement and, and stuff that happened when Europeans came to this part of the country. So it's really difficult in this part of the Midwest to determine who's related to who. But we think we have some ideas, and uh, hopefully within the next several years, we're going to be moving forward with some of that repatriation stuff so that uh, these people can rebury these folks. And are there laws that if you're, uh, you're going to build a building or something and you stumble across something that you're supposed to call? I know in, in Britain they have this because they found artifacts before and they have, you have this time. I'm sure there's laws here in the U.S. that are, aren't they're the same that if you find, is it if you find bones or if you actually find artifacts or what what determines whether you have to stop and call the archaeologists? Well, and if, if, it, if there's not a federal hook, 
like I was talking about before with CRM, uh, and then it varies state by state. In Ohio, there's really nothing. Oh. So there are no laws. Ohio is a privileged state, so if you own property or have privilege to be on it, you can do what you want. So if you have a mound on your property in Ohio and you want to bulldoze it away, you can do that. Uh, some states, Indiana, Kentucky, have much, much stricter laws, and you have to have permits and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, But Ohio doesn't have that. So it's about half and half in the U.S. Some people have strict laws, some don't. Hmm. And the federal law, again, only applies if there's a federal hook. So there's federal money, federal licensing, federal permit involved. So like the Corps of Engineers, if they were going to build something, they're a federal entity. They're, you know, there are federal permits and all that the companies have to use. So they have to do archaeology, among other things. Do people voluntarily, if they own private land, have they ever said, oh, I think I might have found something here? Do they ever call you guys in? or are they? Yeah, sometimes people do the right thing. So if there are developments that don't, we don't have uh, that federal hook on them, sometimes they call us up and say, look, this stuff was found. And then we're working, essentially working at the mercy of those developers. So they control the project. Unlike us at Han, we can control what we do. But when you're on a project where it's not yours, if somebody's building a warehouse or something, well, you pretty much have to work with in their program. Uh, sometimes that does happen and people do the right thing. Sometimes stuff just gets covered up and we wouldn't even know it unless somebody saw it, you know. So what about, uh, I mean, you got the people, okay, they find something. A lot of people bring it to you, the museum guy, but other guys take it straight to West Callan to see if we can sell this thing. Right. You know, oh, it's yeah. just like... And then that gets in a hairy situation too, because you know, is this a, is this a you know something the funerary? Uh, yeah, what you got funerary goods, or? right? So I mean, it's it is it's a difficult situation. So sometimes artifacts are sold if they're value. You know, most of the stuff we have doesn't have tremendous value. All that there there are exceptions to that, but the things that do about value sometimes they wind up at auction. We try to prevent what we refer to as funerary objects from being auctioned. And if we see somebody doing that, we will say something. And sometimes Native American groups will do that. So these Native American groups will look at these online auctions. And if they see things, sometimes they're obviously funerary objects. They'll stay. They were found from a mound, and it's like a necklace or you know yeah. something. And they will try to get those pulled. And sometimes they're successful. I mean, because auction companies don't want to be seen as the bad people and selling stuff they shouldn't be selling. Um, so, but the other stuff, it's not funerary objects. It's, um, you know, this, this is a profitable world. And if things yeah. can be sold, they usually wind up being sold. So, but then you also, it's kind of weird that, uh, you know, local Native Americans, uh, you know, have that attitude. Then you look at, uh, Egypt and King Tut, like everything, everything there was robbed from his grave. Right. And, uh, I don't know what, I, I guess, cause it's older and they don't have, you know, direct ancestors around, or, or, or I, yeah. don't, I don't know. I guess just different a culture. I mean, it's so cool. It's super. You know, this stuff's made yeah. out of pure gold and and whatnot, and you know, I think deserves to be on display. And, yeah. Well, in this country, like in, Native Americans are are very uh, vocal uh, people about protecting, um, you know, the things that they think that are that are theirs. Like particularly their ancestors. If you have your remains, they're you know, they want those things protected and also funerary objects. And there are also other things like sacred items and things they call items of cultural patrimony that there are sometimes things that we wouldn't even understand or wouldn't know uh, which ones are which. Uh, and sometimes they want those sort of things back as well. But they don't want everything back. 
you know, um, they're they're looking uh, to put things right. And I I approach this whole Nagper thing and all this is an issue of social justice. We should have never dug them up in the first place, but we did. Now it's time to facilitate the return. And I, I see it as some it's very simple. Um, I know there are people who want to study this stuff, but we've had them for a long time. I think now's the time. We've we approached a time where we got to get this stuff back in the ground. And the best thing I think about all this Nagpur stuff is we have developed relationships with these Native American tribes, which we never had before, and we should have. Um, and they're great people to work with. Um, and you know, and I'm, I'm. It's one of the. It's probably I would look at it as probably the crowning achievement of my career to get this stuff done, to work with these Native Americans. When you think about it, I've been working for 30-something years on Native American sites, and we didn't actually deal with Native Americans until the last five years. Oh, wow. That's sad. Yeah. And we're trying to make up for that and do the right thing now. Uh, There was a lot of mistrust between on both sides. I think they now have a better understanding of what we do, and I have a better understanding of what they're about. I think that's a fabulous outcome um, to to look at this NAGPRA issue. Um, I've lived in Anderson Township for 25 years and, you know, gradually came to discover that, wow, where I live within a two-mile radius was kind of a hotbed of (laughs) pre-colonial Native American activity. And that's how I kind of got interested in it. And, uh, And most people around here know Fort Agent, they know Serpent Mound, and some people in my neighborhood may know, you know, the Han site and things like that. But can you walk us through the whole, like, thing? Because when colonial people showed up here, uh, I've read this, an article somewhere where they said, you know, they were, they, yes, they were very brave and they were, and they got, cut through all the forest, things like that. But a lot of it was pre done by other people, meaning the Native Americans, the Hopewells, yeah. and all those people. So they showed up with those, some of the stuff pre prepped for them. But uh, can you walk us through, like, how many different, I know there's the Hopewell culture, there's the Mississippi. How does all that fit together? Well, if you want to look at it in a time frame, the earliest stuff uh, that we know of here, we refer to it as Paleo-Indian. There's not a lot to be found, and it dates to uh, maybe 13,000 years ago. Wow. The beginning of that. But it's usually, it's stone tools. Uh, that's what we find. We're not finding bodies. There's hardly any bone. There are exceptions to that where where conservation or preservation is really good. But uh, the, you know, there's an old uh, saying that love is fleeting, stone tools are forever, and that's <laughs> that's what we find. And so archaeologists, it's a Get game. That on of, a t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there you go. it's already been on a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Dang, but there's no copyright. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, so you know, it's. We just don't find a lot of stuff from those time periods. Uh, and these are mobile people at that time. They're, they move around. They're not living in villages. They're small groups or bands. Uh, and it's not until about sometime about 8,000 B.C., which is about 10,000 years ago, that you start seeing population increases and the, the climate changes. So in Paleo-Indian, it's more it's the end of the Pleistocene. It was colder you had uh, coniferous forests, you know, you know, pine trees and that sort of stuff. And then you start seeing deciduous trees come in like we have today. Uh, the landscape changes. They're focusing on different animals like white-tailed deer and turkey, wild turkey and that sort of stuff. And you see populations tend to increase. And by about 2000 BC or about 4000 years ago, we see 
the um, sites that they're not really village sites, but they're seasonal sites where people get together when resources are high. So spring and summer, they're usually along rivers. Uh, and so populations are getting larger and larger. And then somewhere around um, 1000 BC is where we start making the change to what we call the woodland period. And that earliest one is called Adena here. Um, okay. And Adena is famous for their mounds. So, um, you know, we know much less about how they live. We know a lot more about how they buried people. <laughs> um, and some of the biggest mounds around here are Adena. Uh, so there was one in Sailor Park that was uh, 27 feet tall, uh, which is uh, long gone. The, the, one, the biggest one is still here is the Miamisburg Mound up uh, just to the west of Dayton. Uh, if you get off at the Miamisburg exit, go down there. I believe that one is 67 feet high. Jeez. Wow. It's big. You can see it for miles away because it sits way above the landform. Oh, hmm. uh, there were others. There's one in West Virginia that's a little taller, maybe 68 or 69 feet. Uh, but they're known for these big mounds. There was another one in Newtown that was 39 feet, uh, where the Ivy Hills Golf Course is now. So, so the Dina mounds are big mounds. And then somewhere around the birth of Christ, 180 somewhere, uh, we we have what we call Hopewell. So okay. they're still building mounds, but we know a lot more how the Hopo folks actually lived, at least in other places in Ohio. They, they built from somewhere else, or did they just, where did the Indian well, people that, go? Those, I mean, those are go? great questions, and those are the things people are trying to answer. And really, uh -huh. the way to answer that requires um, looking at um, human remains. And that's so you, you either are going to have to look at DNA or some other traits and say, well, are these the same folks? Or not, um, they may totally be different folks. Uh, there's the the evidence is, goes each way on it. Uh, they're also building mounds, and most of the mounds you find around here were Hopewell. They're okay. smaller mounds, but there are hundreds of them. Mm. Hamilton County alone had somewhere between three and four hundred mounds recorded. There may have been a lot more. Wow. there's one still in the Newtown Cemetery. Yeah. Uh, that big one in there. Yeah. It's a good spot for it. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't know what, whether that's a Dean or Hopewell because it's never been actually dug into, uh, as far as I know. Yeah. So I wonder how they, how they start a mound. Is it just like Uncle Charlie dies and they put him right there and put some dirt on him and then, you know, Aunt Lucy dies and they put her right next to him and then pretty soon you just have like hundreds of years it takes to actually form like a, a mound or do they have like a... Great, like I, like I don't know. It, well, it, it it varies some mounds. So, like a lot of the the Adena mounds are exactly what you just described. They're called accretional, so they build up. So there would be like a burial, a burial, a burial, and then that gets covered over and more. So it it builds up through time. Uh, a lot of the Hopa ones are are much more simple than that, but there are also sub mound features in these. There are a lot of them have houses underneath them. Those houses may have had something to do with feasting uh, that involved uh, the burials. Uh, they may have been a house where uh, cremations were done, because sometimes cremations are in these mounds. They call them charnel houses. But there's a lot of you'd be surprised. That we just worked on a project up in Chillicothe about three years ago where someone had dozed a mound away, and there was a shopping uh, center going in, and we went and looked, and there was a lot of stuff below the surface. So the mound was completely gone, 
but there were house remains and stuff, structure remains below. So, which we expect it might be there. It's surprising. So, it's not just above ground. There were things below the surface of the ground prior to building up all that dirt. Wow. Yeah. And so, people also are familiar with Serpent Mound and Fort Ancient. And so, there's, like, I guess, not necessarily mounds, but were called earthworks. Yeah. And uh, I was surprised when I went out the Serpent Mound how low to the ground it is. I mean, it's it's above the ground, but it maybe only goes four feet. I thought it would be like eight or ten feet. But um, is that a burial mound they determine, or is that no? That's logical. Um, that's just refer. It's an effigy mound. Okay. So it's obviously a snake. Yeah. That's very serpentine, and there's various. Uh, depends on who you talk to. What's in the mouth? Um, is the snake um, swallowing an egg? Swallowing the sun? Uh, we don't know. One of the cool things about serpent is that um, about five or six years ago, the person who does our remote sensing out at Han did some work there. And they had looked, if you look at Serpent Mound, it looks when it gets to the head like it's missing a coil where it goes back and forth and back and forth. And then it straightens out. And it's like a lot of people say, man, it looks like there's a coil missing. And he did his magnetometry work there. And there's the missing coil. Clear as can be. So either Native Americans had removed that above-ground coil or when the people in the late 19th century, they actually did some restoration work, they may have um, wiped out that coil or didn't recognize it was there. But it had been there. There was another coil. And the remote sensing is another thing. That's, that's, has re, that has revolutionized archaeology. I mean, if you've yeah, ever so what's seen... what's that exactly? Well, there's a whole bunch... Remote sensing is just seeing into the ground uh, without actually... Um, touching it, you yeah. know, you're using technology. That it's can, like when you're fishing and uh, yeah, and so you're using find the big bass right yeah. on your boat, <laughs> the fish finder. Yeah, so it's the, <laughs> it's the same thing. But what we use at at Han, for instance, we use um, our workhorse thing has been magnetometry. So in uh, magnetometry, will will can discern minor disruptions in the magnetic field. So as we're sitting here, we're being bathed in a magnetic field. But anything that's ferrous metal is going to disrupt that field. So I'm looking at the microphone here. If there's ferrous metal in that, the field will just sort of go sideways around it. This equipment can detect those minor deflections of, of that magnetic field in, in ways that are so minor that so it, it measures things in something called nanoteslas, which is named after Nikola Tesla. To be, uh, Let me give you an example. A refrigerator magnet about the size of a quarter is somewhere usually between 5 and 10 nanoteslas. This thing can detect features in the ground between like 2 and 12 nanoteslas. So it's as if if you buried a refrigerator magnet, that's what it's seeing. It's minor, minor changes. So if you like have a nail, if you had a horseshoe in the ground made of iron, it would blow out an area the size of a VW bus that you're not going to see because that is a terrific disruption in the magnetic field. So we're looking for minor disruptions. And so if you have a six-foot deep pit in the ground, it'll show you exactly where that pit is because the soil inside the pit has different magnetic properties than the soil outside of it. So they show up perfectly on a map. So in the past, we just had to guess where things were. Now, it's like shopping at Kroger's. If I want to, oh, I'm going I'm to look at the remote sensing map. I want to I dig this one. I want to dig this one. Or I'm curious about this one. I just go to it and dig. Um, it's amazing. Plus, it gives you a map. You can see the site. Even though it's a grass field, 
if you were a bird flying over, you wouldn't say anything. But this thing will show you. They'll show you where everything is. Wow. So I know in Milford, um, th- there's a, an effigy that's kind of around the cemetery and it's kind of west of the freeway. Uh, although I read that they had, that was discovered like in the 1800s, and some uh, some fellows traveling through tried to map it, and they mapped it wrong. But can you can you see things like that now more clearly, and be like, yeah, that definitely is an effigy mound, and this and get the exact spec- specifications? Well, you can see. Um, in fact, the one in Milford, there's the, the Milford earthworks. There's a couple of them there, uh, but the one large one in the cemetery up off of it, there uh, a portion of that earthwork wall still shows an aerial photos. So, uh, and we haven't done remote sensing on it, and we may soon to see if it's actually there or, or not. But uh, a lot of areas inside cities still have remnants of stuff. And uh, Jared Burks, the guy who's been doing our remote sensing, he's um, he has a whole bunch of people that sit there and look at aerial photos, like from the 30s and 40s and 50s. And these earthworks will show up in aerial photos. I mean, sometimes they're not real, but a lot of times they are. And he'll go out and run the magnetometer over them, sure enough. Is that the case with Marymount? They thought there was one along the river, but then, and Stryley told me, no, they, they later found out, no, that wasn't the case, actually. It's not. Uh, so, like, is it or is it the one that's above the Marymount site? Uh, well, I don't believe it's the serpent. Okay. No. no. All right. I don't. So that's just I think it's just an embankment wall. The the wall was definitely done by Native Americans, but I don't oh, okay. believe it's a serpent. But the site itself, the Madisonville site, is yeah. that Madisonville site is the mother of all sites. That site was dug early and often, and there's still parts of it left, but everybody dug that site. And um, who, who, who settled there? Who was... That's what we refer to as Fort Ancient. So it's the same people at Hahn. Okay. And they're only what? Um, they're about. So we go Adina, Hopewell, Fort Ancient. What's or is it? What's, what's Adina, the... Hopewell, uh, Late Woodland. We have a little period in between where we don't know a lot about first centuries, and then about a thousand A.D. You get the beginning of what we call Fort Ancient. Okay, and they're the last before, right? Just before colonial yeah. people show up. And I, I don't like the term Fort Ancient simply because it it conflates too much in space and time. Yeah. So I think the early and middle parts of Fort Ancient up to about fourteen hundred. Is probably one culture. I think after that, it's a different culture. But it, it's remarkable how things can look the same on the artifacts that we find. It's simply because the really, it's all the durable stuff. I mean, pottery is going to look the same. Flint tools are going to look the same. Bone tools are going to look the same. But we think it's a different group that comes in based on a number of lines of evidence. And that's some of the stuff that we've been trying to use in our NAGPRA dealings in talking to tribes is saying we think this is separate and a lot of that is simply based on language groups so that's one of the easiest ways to deal with this so you know you have Algonquian groups you have Siouan groups will be called Degay and Sioux uh, and you have um, Iroquoian groups those are the three big ones there are others but yeah so those language groups so a lot of these groups were related in the past because they have they're in the same language group so that's sort of the way that we've been dealing with this so it's, it's a little difficult because we're not doing DNA. We're not working at, with the actual remains. We're just trying to discuss it. They don't want us to do that, and we understand that. It may not even solve it. We, you know, we don't know. But So we're trying to do it by looking at ethno-historical documents. So we're, like you were saying, sort of like the pre-colonial stuff. So people actually uh, wrote stuff down when uh, Europeans arrived and who was here and all that sort of stuff. And so we're trying to look at those documents to see which tribes were here, 
We know that the Shawnee were here. There's no doubt about that. And we know that Miami were here. But when you get beyond that, it gets tougher. But we think there's a whole bunch of them. But wasn't most of the native population gone by the time Europeans showed up here? I wouldn't say they were gone. They weren't. There were, there were not any permanent village sites okay. being occupied when they arrived. Uh, they sort of left or got pushed out prior to that. But they were here. Uh, there were groups here. So we're, there are uh, attacks on some of the station blockhouses. The most notable attack here was Coleraine Station or Dunlap Station up near uh, on um, up the Great Miami Valley, uh, just at the northern end of Hamilton County, up not too far from Fernald. Um, that fort was attacked by uh, an organized group of Native Americans. Uh, Blue Jacket was there, but it only lasted a, a day or two. Um, most of the conflicts, actual violent conflicts in here, were they were infrequent. And by the Treaty of Greenbelt of 1795, um, most of the Native Americans were pushed out in, around here. Yeah. I visited the uh, Evansville site in Indiana a couple of years ago, and uh, that site's huge. And uh, I was surprised to find out their mounds weren't necessarily burial mounds. They were actually, they put garbage in them. Are you talking about angel mounds? Yeah. 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 That's a also a Mississippian site. or it's Mississippian, so, so we have Mississippian influence at our Four Nation sites. We think they're people who came from the West and came up here. Are they and they exist at the same time as the Hopewell? No. Or this is way after the Hopewell. Okay. So Formation? Hopewell's done about four hundred, so okay. uh, six hundred years later. Okay. Uh, would be the earliest time. So we do have sites, Fort Ancient sites here. There's one in the the, the mouth of the Great Miami that's was uh, from the eleventh century, so it has like ten fifty radiocarbon dates. That's the earliest that we have this Fort Ancient stuff. And those are wall trench houses, which are Mississippian influence. So the, the, uh-huh. that's either ideas or people coming from the West up here. Apparently, this was a very fertile area. There were issues and problems in other places in the Midwest. So it all has to do with temperature and rainfall. And um, this was a great place. If you look at all the major village sites, this was the place to be. There's it, some big ones. It seems like because you've got Serpent Mound, Fort Ancient. <laughs> Uh, the Butler site, let's talk about that. I didn't even know that existed until I heard on the radio that you had spearheaded that effort to you know, to, to get that saved. From Tell us, how did that, all that come about? Well, it came about very quickly. I think there was like 35 days before the auction when we found out. We knew about the site. Archaeologists knew about the site. It was on the National Register. It's, uh, uh, it's called Fortified Hill uh, because the people who originally uh, recorded it in the 19th century, they thought all these earthen embankments were fortifications because that's they thought in military terms, yeah. uh, but they're not. They're just enclosures. They're enclosing. So it's like the walls of a church. It's like when you're inside, it's sacred. When you're outside, it's not. So this site, I had been on it maybe 30 years ago, and I don't even hardly remember. And it had, with the property owner, the guy who owned it was a doctor up in Hamilton. And he had told everybody he wanted to preserve it. Uh, but then he died. There was nothing in his will or anything to that effect. Uh, so his, you know, his heirs wanted, of course, to liquidate the property to the uh, the best that they could. So it was auctioned off. And so what we did was try to get a coalition of people together to get enough money to uh, acquire this auction because we knew it was going to go for over a million dollars. The parcels that we needed, and there was four parcels that we really needed. Uh, and luckily, the um, you know the Harry T. Willig Foundation, the people who run the um, the Pyramid Hill Sculpture Park, 
came to the rescue and they purchased all four of those lots. Uh, and their, you know, their goal was obviously to, to preserve that. But we had a coalition of almost a thousand people donating money on top of that and other groups in Hamilton uh, and elsewhere who also gave some sizable amounts to her that we were surprised. It just happened so fast, but we were successful at auction. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of developers just said, why do I want to buy this land and destroy this earthwork? It's not, they don't want that kind of publicity. And not I think, worth all the paperwork. No, and I think they just decided that, you know, this is, we'll just pass on this. So, uh, um, so there wasn't, uh, you know, a, a real strong bidding war of a bunch of people in the auction room uh, trying to get it. It was just a few people. So, so it, people more aware now of yeah, and they are, and that's that's another great thing is the awareness. You can't buy that sort of publicity. So I was doing sort of the media part of this. The guy who was running it just happened to be in a project in Lithuania. He wasn't in town, so I did every news channel. I did Spectrum Ohio, the cable thing. I did um, uh, public radio. Uh, all sorts of stuff. So I was up there a lot. We were trying to get the message out and, of course, include the pledge information. Here's how to pledge uh, for the site. So the Archaeological Conservancy out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, was running the pledge system because they're a national organization and they have sites around here. And I'm also a trustee for another group called Heartland Earthworks Conservancy, which their goal, our goal is, again, to preserve earthworks to facilitate their acquisition, but we don't want to own them because we don't have the staff to do that. We we want somebody else to own it. We just want to make that happen. Get, get a conservation, in the right hands. Yeah, get a, to get a <laughs> conservation easement. You know, something that's in the deed, so that they'll be preserved when the rest of when we're all gone. So, and have archaeologists been to that site before? Like who who built that one and who? That's Hopewell. Okay. So those those hilltop enclosures. So the most famous one is Fort Ancient. Okay. So you could probably fit 10 of the fortified hill enclosures in, in Butler County inside of Fort Ancient. Fort Ancient is enormous. There's also another big one at um, extreme western Hamilton County in Shawnee Lookout Park. It's called Miami Fort. Again, they, the fort, they all have the name Fort in them. Oh, because... Because okay. people thought that they were fortifications. So there's sort of this one there, and that the one at uh, Miami Fort was actually mapped by uh, William Henry Harrison. So I mean that's cool when you can put a map out on exhibit that a president did. Wow! Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, even though he's only president for forty days, but you know you can put it out there. <laughs> so <laughs> Serpent Mountain, yeah. So Serpent Mountain again. Who built that one? Is that's oh well, we do, we don't know. That's uh, right. Well, it depends on who, who you believe. So. The guy at Ohio History Connection, uh, Red Leper, says that it's late prehistoric. So, in other words, in Fort Ancient time. Okay. It used to be thought, when I first started learning archaeology, that it was Adena, what we call early woodland. And um, years ago, they finally did a whole series of uh, radiocarbon dates on it. And all very consistently Adena age stuff. So there's a there's sort of an argument back and forth, and I you know I don't want to take sides, and it's not my side. I don't really work there, uh, but there's an argument as to who is correct, and and there's a lot of time between those two. You know, there's a thousand years uh, probably between those two dates, groups of dates. So, uh, so there is a little bit of controversy there. I guess controversy is good. You know, people should know that we don't know the answers to everything. There's a lot of stuff we don't know the answer to. 
I mean, for instance, working at Han, I have more questions about that site than I did when I started 12 years ago. I'm more confused about some things. The more you learn sometimes, the more you realize, oh my God, I just don't know enough. And who, the Han site was what people were, that's... Our field school that, site. That, but that's, that's Fort Ancient people? Yes. That, okay. Yes. All right, now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, that's Fort Ancient. So that's the same as the Madisonville site. Okay. But there are other sites down that valley. The Turpin site, oh, yeah. which is, um, all, they're all in the National Register, all these sites, which gives them some sort of protection against federal involvement. Uh, so the Turpin site's there. And then going down uh, on the other side of Beachmont Levee, there's um, there's two more, the Clough Creek site, and then there's the Sand Ridge site. Oh. Uh, and those so and there's a whole there's, so there's a whole series of those um, late prehistoric sites and a lot of times what happens is they just move from one to the other so both the Madisonville site and Han site have what we call middle and late Fort Ancient that w- those sites weren't occupied continuously you would you would move from one to the other because you it, after a while you run out of firewood you're you know your 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 the fields the soil needs replenishing. Um, you know, so people tend to move, but they, they, a lot of times they come back. So we'll find houses where there are two wall trenches groups, one inside the other is if they knew the older house was still there, they could see where it is and they just built another house around it. So we see that. So they would, they would move uh, and come back. So when we, when we say the Han site was occupied, you know, for probably 350 years, it's. It's probably was on and off for 350 years. Wow. Oh. Uh, when you talk about like communities and populations and stuff, are you talking about like thousand people, fifty thousand people? Do you guys have any idea like how many people actually inhabited some of those areas? Um, I think they're not thousands. They're in the hundreds probably. At the end, what we see. So in the middle for an ancient, at, particularly at Han. And if you guys have ever been up to uh, Sunwatch Village in Dayton, you can see these nice, pretty circular villages with a ring of houses going around. We know that's at Han. So that dates to like 1310 to 1350 when they started there, A.D. Very orderly, organized. Uh, so if there's maybe 20 houses going around in a ring, maybe two rings, if you had 40 houses and you had maybe 15 people to a house, so, you know, what do you have? Six hundred people. That would be the max. That's a lot. Man, fifteen people in a house, huh? Well, yeah. They, I think it's not mom, dad, two kids. Uh, no, it's day. not. It's not nuclear families like we have today. <laughs> Most groups are. Uh, uh, they would have extended families living in a house. And those houses we have there are about sixteen by twenty feet to the outside walls. So it's essentially. A little bigger than some of our garages. Wow. You but know. they're just in there to sleep, right? I mean, they're not playing PlayStation all day. <laughs> no, no. You know, just hanging out in the living room. I mean, they're just, like, it's just protection no, from the elements, it's right? Yeah. It's hunting, they're gathering. Yeah. So, yeah. So they're not big houses. And when they start out, they're even smaller than that. But they're, they were fine. They were suitable for what, what they needed. Uh, now, at the Madisonville time, things change. That's the Madisonville was referred to as the time period. That's the end of Fort Ancient. And it's, this horizon is seen all over various parts of the central Ohio Valley. So in West Virginia and Kentucky. And here, there's an abrupt change, uh, which we think is a separate culture. And the, at, Ma- at the Han site, when we look at that, it, it looks like they just expanded to fill the entire landform. 
but that central plaza, the open plaza, is still respected, where there's no there's no house remains there, there's no pits that date to Fornension. So there could be, the populations there could be much higher. There could be a thousand people there. And then if you think of the Madisonville site and the Han site, they're occupied at the same time. The Madisonville is big. There's, I mean, Han is 12 acres. And Madisonville is, could even be more. They're only, what, like 2,000, 3,000 meters apart. They're just on opposite sides of the river. Yeah. Uh, so what we think is happening is that security has become a real issue. So early on in Fort Ancient, you get these Fort Ancient sites way up the valley. So they're north of Dayton. Uh, you get them, um, they're up north of uh, Fort Ancient State Memorial up there. And then all of a sudden, when this Madisonville horizon starts, they're, they're gone. They're abandoned. And everything seems to be down near Cincinnati. So the biggest three these Madisonville face sites are Hahn, Madisonville, and across the river in Boone County, the Petersburg site, um, which is on the Ohio River. Very, And you think about it, almost none of these sites are on the Ohio River. And I think it's because security is an issue. You don't want to be high and dry right on the Ohio. The Ohio River is the corridor from traveling east to west in this part of the country. You know, it's the easiest way to travel by canoe. Overland trails are much more harder to do. So I think the reason a lot of these sites are right up the valley, so like the Little Miami and the Great Miami Valley, is that they're more protected. They have more of a warning of what's going on um, because they're up off off the valleys. So we think, at least at the end, Madisonville, there's pressure from other groups like the Iroquois, so the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, a lot of these Native American groups are raiding each other. Um, the Iroquois eventually uh, won out most of this, like the Seneca and others. Uh, we think it may have been untenable for these um, the Native Americans here um, by about 1700 to stay. They might have thought, well, we just, we just got to get west of here. And we think a lot of them left that way. Not all of them. Uh, some of them went north, so up, up near Piqua and places like that. But you didn't want to be high and dry. Uh, they used to call these replacement wars. So, like, you, you would be fighting each other, and you had you would lose people, and you had to go fight somebody else to replace the people. Um, so, <laughs> I think it 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 just got really difficult to stay. It doesn't imply that Native Americans weren't here when Europeans arrived. They just weren't living in these big villages right here at near Cincinnati, but they were certainly still around. So, weirdly, when Europeans show up here, or uh, they pick the three sites they pick are right on the river, at the mouth of the rivers you're talking about. The right, little Miami, Great Columbia, Miami, Cincinnati, Lincoln. and yeah. North Bend. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. So I guess they had no concerns about security. Like this. Well, this they uh, they were the security. <laughs> That's I guess so. Yeah. Uh, you know, With so their like fire so this was this was kind of the seat for the Northwest Territory, Cincinnati and Fort Washington. So the military, um, that was their job to sort of provide security for the Northwest Territory. So Cincinnati became the basis for a lot of these raids against Native American groups, uh, you know, including St. Clair and, uh, and uh, Man Anthony Wayne, uh, when they went north. And St. Clair's was the first one, and he was defeat, one of the worst defeats in U.S. military history. The Native Americans uh, defeated him soundly. And it wasn't until a few years later when um, Matt Anthony Wayne went up with a better army 
that they actually defeated the Native Americans. And then the Treaty of Greenville, um, a little bit after that, was the result of Native American groups ceding their rights to most of the land in Ohio and other places. So, Do we find mounds and earthworks in other parts of the country, or is that something kind of unique to the Miami or to the Ohio River Valley? There are lots of mounds, anywhere where you have you know deciduous sorts of areas. So there are mounds all over uh, the East Coast, the Great Lakes, okay. uh, parts of the South. There will be certainly less and less of them when you get in the Southwest. and the West, it's kind of a different... Yeah. Area. Or there are earthworks, lots of places as well. So, um, one of the, the, so one earthwork site in the U.S. that's on as a World Heritage Site is Poverty Point. Uh, and it's in Louisiana. So it's an early, very early earthwork. Um, so there's a bunch of them around. Um, and that's the other thing that's happening now is the UNESCO World Heritage stuff. So there are eight Hopewell age, uh, earthwork sites, which, are up to be placed uh, as World Heritage Sites. And we're hoping that's going to happen within the next couple of years. And that includes all the stuff in Chillicothe around Mound City. It includes the Fort Ancient um, State Memorial and the Newark Earthworks up near Newark, Ohio. So, I didn't know about any of these. i got to write all these down. I only, <laughs> knew, I only knew about Serpent Mound, Fort Ancient, and, uh, and like the, and the Han site isn't really like publicly uh, visitable. Yeah, as, as, well... Yeah. Near Chillicothe is where most of those big uh, geometric earthworks are, where they have circles and squares, and they're just weird. The geometry is fabulous, and those are just like, so like circles will fit inside of a square. So these Native Americans knew what they were doing. Um, so, you know, you could, when you think about building a circle on the ground, these circles are enormous. They got like 20 acres in them. They're not small, and then and then you have a square with them. But that square, planning. but that square will <laughs> that circle fits perfectly inside square, so that it meets on those four sides. And this, what was the purpose of those? We we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, you know, it, it, we may never know, but uh, I think some of it has to do with just really constructing a model of their cosmos on the ground. Some of them have astronomical alignments, like Newark Earthwork has um, moon alignments. So um, there's, and it's it's a golf course, which is a whole other controversy up there, but there's a circle <laughs> and a square, and there's like a graded way that runs between them. Uh, and the, so the moon has an 18-year cycle that moves back and forth. Uh, so every 18 years, the moon rises right down the middle of that causeway and comes up. So they knew that. That's not an accident. And they would have had to do that by working from the hills miles behind them above Chillicothe and sighting all that in. And it's and when you think about it, it's a generational thing. So every 18 years, they have they would have a ceremony and have that moon rise. And they still do it today. They just uh, I was at one, and National Public Radio was there and some other, but it was, oh my God, it was January or something, and it was cold as can be so we were there watching the moon come up and it was cool it was right down the middle on that that day only there's one day out of those 18 years and then it goes back and it'll come back again so some some uh some sites have uh solar alignments uh like sun watch village in dayton there uh, there's a center pole in the middle of that village in the shadow from that center pole uh so they were concerned about planting and harvesting they don't have clocks so they want to know when they have to do things. So there are two houses. So and so the shadow goes to one, the shadow goes to the other. 
So planting, harvesting, right into the door of the house on that day. I mean, those aren't accidents. They, those houses were placed specifically for that. It's interesting because you think most of our time would be consumed with hunting and gathering and taking out a living, and <laughs> yet they had time that. to build these, you know, really complicated earthworks and mounds. And we probably got some guys that are better at hunting, and other guys that are better at well, that could astronomy. Be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I mean, I'll just stay home and you know figure out what time of day it is. You guys go. There's been a lot of deer. Yeah. There's been a lot of studies where uh, hunters and gatherers actually uh, can have considerably more free time than agriculturalists. Um. It, it seems nonsensical, but when they look at the time, like like hunters and gatherers are still in Africa, and um, they they'll cons- they'll spend on average less time than agriculturalists who live nearby. You know what does it take to, to go on a seasonal round or look for resources? But when you're in sedentary, all of a sudden, all sorts of things. You have upkeep a thing like houses. And, um, you know, you have to take care of the crops. They're right there. You can't you can't go away from them. So, sedentism has has its own issues, including like disease and things like that. If you're living in close quarters oh, with a yeah. bunch of people, these diseases spread easier. People don't get along. When, <laughs> you know, when you're in a mobile group, if you don't get along, you say, "Well, I'll just." Stradley was on about they, they they found a. Uh, he was just back. We were working back here one day, and he said, "Yeah, they found a, a a skull, a piece of skull. It might have been at the Han site, where they this dude probably got killed." And they couldn't, and he met an un, a timely. Do you, you familiar with that? They found that clearly this guy met an untimely demise, just from the, the shape, the, the shape that the skull was in. He had probably gotten. I don't remember it, but as a rule, we generally don't talk about those sorts of things because Native Whoops. Americans, <laughs> uh, you know, sensitivity to human remains. Yeah. We don't dig burials there. Occasionally, we will encounter uh, yeah. a piece of human bone. Uh, we have very strict notification procedures that we use if we find, if we run it. We try to avoid them. If we run into one, uh, we we make phone calls to our tribal partners. Uh, and within 24 hours, we uh, send them uh, an email explaining the whole situation. And we will backfill everything involved. So if we opened up a unit or a square and we're in a feature, all of them get backfilled with the same dirt that went in them. No photographs. We, we just close it up, and then we notify them so they know what we're, uh, what we're doing. Uh, so it's, we're trying to be as transparent as possible with them. So we tend not, uh, in the same vein, we tend not to discuss those sorts of things okay. uh, because they would rather we didn't. Well, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The, uh, I remember a few years back, the uh, I mean, it was all over uh, the news uh, it was like a construction worker was building a sidewalk or something in, New- in Newtown and found like a warrior or something with like a big, uh, oh, they yeah. call it a gorget or uh, all, all these words, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's a, uh, but that's, that's a gorget and it was, um, it's made out of marine shell. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, so the, it's the Newtown Firehouse site and the, so we did salvage. A couple of times in the uh, last, I'm trying to think, it'd be 30, almost 40 years, uh, 39 years that we did, I think, three salvage projects there. Because it's in an urban area, we don't know where the site goes because it's just lawns, sidewalks, and streets. Yeah. So whenever anybody does anything, sometimes they hit stuff. So originally two of these 
and they were with uh, human burials. There was two of these gorgets. One had a um, a uh, possum on it um, engraved on it. The other one had a mountain lion engraved on it. And remember, these are marine shells, so they're from the southern Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. So the material itself has come a long way. Wow. So this one, which is about, I think it's going to be four years ago, five years ago, in Newtown, it was the same thing. They were um, putting in a fiber optics box within the road right away. And they came down upon and hit one of these um, marine shell gorgets. And this one had a composite animal on, animal on it, what we call a chimera. So it's, uh, we believe it's um, the head of a Carolina parakeet, which is an extinct bird, and the feet and tail of a panther. So another cat. Huh. Um, and next in it, of course, went underneath was the upper torso of a body. Um, so that was all that, because it was going to be destroyed, that was removed. It's, it's back at our collections facility and it's part of the NAGPRA stuff. So at some point that material will be repatriated. So that'll yeah. never be on display. That'll... Because, I mean, as, as cool as it is, it sounds like everything you described is like, that'd be something I'd like to go to a museum and see. Yeah. But, yeah. well, as far as when we display, we don't know. When we just, uh, the, the grave goods or funerary objects are, uh, those are negotiations we have with the Native American groups. If we can convince them that there's a compelling reason to exhibit those, that they tell a story, that's fine. If they really don't want us to do that, we won't do it. Uh, I mean, we that's part of building a relationship. We listen to their wants and needs uh, and what they believe. So if they have an issue with that, then we really, as the stewards of this material, and again, most of it shouldn't have been ours in the first place, we have to listen to them. And that's what we're trying to do. So that's five years later, it's still uh, up in... We still have it. We don't... We, we, it's up in the air what's going to happen. We'll, uh, do we know who it belongs to? Well, it's... Um, it's that late woodland period that I was telling you about. So in between Hopewell and early Fort Ancient, we and we this and in this area it's actually referred to as Newtown, just like the late prehistoric stuff is referred to Madisonville because Madisonville was a type site. Yeah. It's referred to Newtown because the Turpin site, which is down closer to the levee, Beachmont Levee, mm-hmm. is the type site for the Newtown phase. So it it so it represents a Newtown phase. It's so it's somewhere five six hundred. AD, somewhere in that time. We don't know a whole lot about it, those people at all. So that's what it dates to. And as difficult it is, is determining who Native Americans folks are in late prehistory. When you go back in time further, it gets harder and harder. It really does get hard to do. So they could belong to a tribe that's originally in the Carolinas or the right. Gulf. Yeah, wow. Most, uh, most tribal groups were mobile to some extent. They moved yeah. around. But the shiny are... are a great example of that. The Shawnee appear all over the place, and they're moving. They were in the Carolinas, then they're in New York, and then they're in Ohio. So they moved a lot. It makes it difficult to pinpoint them. Uh, other groups are a little more sedentary, but uh, and then some groups just move through. So the Ohio River was a corridor. So we know that there are groups that lived on the East Coast. They're now in Oklahoma, and so they came down the Ohio River. So sites along anywhere along the high river could be theirs uh and we have to assume that that's a possibility so we when we meet and consult with these groups we want to know what what time periods are interested in where are you interested in what do your oral histories tell you 
about where you were because you know that's essentially what we have we have to use those lines of evidence and archaeological evidence where we have it to try to reach some sort of conclusion and there's probably still a lot of stuff yet to be found oh yeah yeah wow yeah i've still learned so much work to do I know, right? I've, I've yeah. learned so much. I got to visit some of these sites I've never heard of before, too. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Well, I think it's time for a code. Yeah, yeah. Every uh, every guest on our show comes on, and we give them the uh, the great ability to uh, give us a promo code that will be worth twenty percent uh, on our website and in our stores. The week after this uh, podcast is mm-hmm. uh, released, so any any word that you're inspired by it could be anything. Doesn't even have to be anything anthropology, archaeology related. Any word, any, any word. word. Yeah, I'd like to use the word indigenous. Indigenous right. sounds good, folks. So use the word indigenous at CincyShirts.com. Save twenty percent off your order. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, Oh, yeah, one last thing. Bigfoot. Where are you on Bigfoot? <laughs> I'm nowhere on Bigfoot. Nowhere? I don't think Bigfoot exists. No. Ah. You've never, like, dug up any kind of artifact no. and there's, like, big, you know, big growling monster on it. And you're like, ah, these guys saw Bigfoot once. Yeah, it just, it's like any conspiracy sort of thing. It, it, the, the, <laughs> for that to work, somebody would actually have to have remains from this person. On, and in yeah, an anthropological sense, you would have to have something. I don't think there's anything ever been found compelling, but we live in, you know, um, a period in history where conspiracy theories are just like the coolest thing. Yeah. There you go. You know, and it's like so Bigfoot <laughs> and, uh, you know, like Dan, and he calls himself Yeti. It's the same thing. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like, you know, whatever. I just, I don't believe it. I don't think you're going to find many anthropologists or physical anthropologists that will actually deal with your remains are going to believe it because no one's ever shown them something that's them. Yeah. So, all right. Well, you heard we it go. first, guys. Sorry. All right. No Bigfoot. Sorry to disappoint you guys, but all anyway. Right. Well, Bob Kenheimer, thanks a lot. Uh, follow the museum and everything on all the social channels, as Elizabeth told us when she was here. And how can people find out more about, like, the Han site and Serpent Mountain and all that? What was the best resource, you reckon? Well, we do have a little bit on our website about the Han site. Um, I would say if people really want to know, they should contact us. And we can tell them we can do the same sort of stuff. If you're really, if you're doing research, if you have an interest, let us know, and I will certainly talk to them. Send me an email. Uh, I think that's the easiest way to do to actually physically talk to someone. Okay. I mean, we could get them reading whole long things. Sure, but I don't sure. think they want to do that. So right. just have them talk to me. All right, great. Well, thanks. Cool. A, thanks a lot. Sure. Bob Genheimer. Boy, I, just fascinating stuff. I don't know. I guess I got interested, like I said, because uh, where I live in the eastern hills there in Anderson Township, uh, there's a bunch of sites all around us. And so uh, native peoples could have been wandering through my backyard uh, way back when. How about that? So if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email, podcast at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line. Then tell us about who you'd like to have on the show, and we'll try to track that person down. Maybe give us a little brief bio, if you like, why you think that person would be interesting to talk to. And you can also use that podcast at cincyshirts.com email address there to uh, to uh, support the show via PayPal or Venmo. Again, 
kick in whatever you feel is fair. And be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including those who may no longer live in the tri-state but still feel connected to the area. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find their music on iTunes, Spotify, or where else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Lots of defunct sports teams, uh, restaurants, radio stations, shopping malls, that sort of affair, like Cincy Shirts, except for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is INDIGENOUS, all lowercase, all uppercase. You can alternate lower and uppercase if you like uh, to be cute about it. Either way, it's all going to work to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or you can come into our physical, or as we say, brick and mortar stores in Over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and Loveland, and say indigenous, you'll get 20% off your entire order. How about that? Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from, and as always, download or stream us next time. Bye!